looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Brian, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 82 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. We've got an amazing show for you today. I say it's great. Some might say it's shit. But I'm going to have to insist it's definitely that and also great. That's right. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is here. I'm so excited to have him as a guest this week. You loved him in 25th Hour. You loved him in The Wire. You loved him in Cedar Rapids, in Black Klansman, in Defy Bloods, and currently starring in Your Honor on Showtime with Brian Cranston. We discuss Isaiah's amazing career. We discuss Isaiah's amazing bobblehead. He had one of the largest Kickstarters in all of Kickstarter history. And of course, we discuss his most famous catchphrase, Sheet. and its origin, which most people think is from The Wire, but actually it's from, oh, ah, you're going to have to wait and listen to the interview. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. If you haven't already, check out last week's amazing episode with Fred Grandy. Gopher from The Love Boat was here. We talked about his really cool career. That started with Maud, a season of Monster Squad, of course being gopher on the love boat, and then heading to the House of Representatives to serve in Congress for the state of Iowa. Amazing conversation. I got so many emails and DMs and calls about it. So definitely make sure you didn't miss that one. If you love the love boat, I know you do. Also search up my awesome conversation with Ted Lange, Isaac from the love boat, gopher and Isaac. Both came to live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin show. I know, I'm so blessed. Check those out. You won't regret it. You know what else you won't regret? Listening to the bonus episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin show this Thursday. It's like a Thanksgiving gift a week after Thanksgiving. What is this bonus episode? Well, glad you asked. You know how I'm always talking about crossing the streams, the live show I do every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time? Well, we're still doing those live, but then we're bringing you extra special listeners of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show, a bonus episode that pulls out some of the greatest TV and movie binge-watching reviews that we've done over the past year. That's right. It's like a box of chocolate. You never know which episode you're going to get. It's going to be amazing. All your favorite hosts will be there, all our guests, and just amazing TV binge-watching suggestions. How often am I going to do it? That's up to you guys. I want to hear your feedback. If you guys love it, we'll keep bringing you bonus episodes. And the best part is you don't have to do anything. Just like, subscribe, follow the podcast, and it gets delivered right to your ears. How easy is that? All right. I look forward to you enjoying it. I look forward to hearing back from you, and I look forward to hearing your own reviews after you watch the amazing shows we discuss. 
And now it's time for the social media tip. All right. This is the fun part of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. A little 411 I picked up on the street. Sharing with you the little tidbits that are out there to help us all raise our social game together. Today's tip is, unfortunately, only for iOS, iPhone, iPad users of Twitter. But if you fall in that category, voice tweets. That's right. When you click compose a tweet on your mobile app, there's a little purple waveform next to the camera icon. When you click on that, then you get a little purple microphone. Click that. It starts recording everything you're saying. Stop it. Click done. Then type your tweet out and click tweet. That's it. And you have posted a Twitter voice tweet. It automatically adds captions for you so people can read it with the sound off. And that's it. Have fun with that. Post one. Tag me at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. I'll reply. Looking forward to it. And that's the social media tip. Who's excited for Isaiah Whitlock Jr.? So many stories are just around the corner. He talks about how he landed the role in Goodfellas. Meeting Spike Lee and getting to work with Spike Lee in six films. Setting the record on Law & Order as the most guest stars ever. Black Klansman, Cedar Rapids, The Five Bloods. So much. And that's coming up in just a minute. But first, I do want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. And that's how we keep the lights on. I do also want to point your attention to the official Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Talking Bobblehead website where you can buy your own Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Talking Bobblehead. Just go to she.com. That's S-H-9-E-S-I-T.com. There you can order your own official Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Bobblehead. They're $35. They say she three different ways. We talk all about it in the interview as well. This is the perfect holiday gift. As I understand it, there isn't that many left. So if you're interested, head on over to sheet.com right now. S-H-9-E-S-I-T.com. And with that, I think it's the perfect segue to share the conversation I had with Isaiah Whitlock Jr. with you. Enjoy. All right, everyone, my next guest, you've loved him in a million things, including 25th Hour, The Wire, Cedar Rapids, To Five Bloods, most recently, Your Honor, star of film, theater, and television, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. This is so fun. My first introduction to you, where I became a huge fan, I'm sure most people say The Wire, but for me, it was Cedar Rapids. Okay. I love that movie. I don't, I don't, I don't know why I hadn't watched The Wire at that time, but that was Ronimal. That's where like, yeah, I got, that's when I really started to enjoy. I really forgot they called me the Ronimal. Uh, you just, you just now brought that back to me. But uh, anyway, go ahead. Well, that's a great nickname. How did you not just keep the I've been surprised that didn't carry with you as much as your other famous catchphrase. It did for about a year. Then after about a year, it was like, okay, moving on, you know, got to get something else. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that has stuck with me over the years is the shit. That's a good one. And I want to talk about that in detail, but I want to build up to it because I know there's a lot of a lot of story before that. When did you know you wanted to be an actor? Was this from childhood? No, 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 
when I was in high school, I was an athlete. I played football and I got a scholarship to small college out on the plains in Minnesota called Southwest State University. But I remember my freshman year, I kept getting hurt, just kept getting like injured. Didn't really quite know what I was going to do because I had only gone to school to go to college, but I was just going to play football. I had no other ideas as to what I would would do. And then um, I went with a friend. She was auditioning for The Crucible, uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And I went and I, I just went with her and I sat in and then they asked me if I wanted to read. And I did. I got a part in the show and never saw the girl again. But uh, uh, but I got cast in The Crucible. And that's when I started to think, OK, maybe maybe this wouldn't be a bad profession, even though I was terrible in The Crucible. I mean, I was just awful. But I, I did have the honor of working with Arthur Miller and telling Arthur Miller the story, just how bad I was. <laughs> He smiled. So that's awesome. But it's so interesting to me, the girl that brought you there that you, that you went with, and then you never saw her again. That moment sort of set your life on a whole different path, right? I mean, it could have eventually gotten there anyway, but this person made such an impact on you and it was just in a fleeting moment. And then you took it from there. Yeah. I mean, if she had taken me somewhere else, I probably would be doing that right now. You know, I mean, if we had gone to some fast food joint, I'd probably uh, be working there. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Right, right. She could have been hungry. You could have ended up at Subway. And today you'd be like the number one Subway artist in the world. Yeah, right, right, Subway sandwich artist in the world. Yeah, and being the Guinness Book of World Records for eating so many uh, Subway sandwiches or something. Right, right. I'd be doing a food-related podcast. That's why we'd be talking. It all come together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, so you had the football scholarship, kept getting hurt. If you hadn't gotten hurt, did you have your heart set on going professional or trying to go professional in football? No. I mean, that that's what kind of turned me a little bit. I thought, if you're not going to be a professional athlete, the amount of pain and injury I was enduring just didn't quite make sense. It was sort of like, what's what the hell's the point? So I just decided I got to start thinking about something else. And I, I did at one time think about journalism or something like that but you know i'm I'm happy i'm doing what i'm doing now yeah i think we're all happy you're doing you're doing what you're doing now but all right so the role in the crucible then is that then you graduated that's why you then chose to go to the american conservatory theater no what happened was uh in my junior year i had heard about this company in san francisco called the american conservatory theater and i looked them up and i found that they had a summer training program And this was really, to me, like the big shift in my life, because I went to San Francisco for the summer training program to study acting. They liked me so much, they asked me to stay. But I had promised my dad that I would finish college. And that was a big deal. So I told them if they still wanted me in a year, I would come back. And that's what I did. 1975 in San Francisco was life changing in a number of ways. I mean, it was, that was, uh, you know, the hate ashbury uh, time. And I was just there. It was a major culture shock. I had never seen anything quite like it. Free love. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> That's about all I'll say about that. But, um, <laughs> but I, I did that, went back to Minnesota, finished college. And then I went out to San Francisco and studied in like the major training program that they had there. And then I did that for about 
I think it was maybe about two, three years. And then uh, they asked me to join the company that they had there. They had a very prestigious rotating repertory theater. And I joined that. I was there for about maybe four years. And then I went to uh, New York. So when you went to New York, that's when you started to do theater? No, I did theater in San Francisco. Okay, you did theater? That's all I did. That's all. So The Iceman Cometh, The Merchant of Venice, Mastergate? That was all New York. Okay, okay. The stuff in San Francisco with the American Conservatory Theater, they did a lot of classic plays and things of that nature. You know, I looked at it more as like a very good education that kind of prepared me for New York and my career and everything like that. That was a really nice foundation, especially for a young actor in his early 20s. Awesome. So when you were in New York, this is when you started getting more into TV and, and film as well? Uh, not right away. I mean, the, the television and film, I would say, is only about maybe 20 years old. I mean, I got off to a bit of a late start for a number of reasons. One, New York was new and it was tough just getting started, finding an agent, making connections and things of that nature. The other thing was that there were not that many opportunities like there are today for African-Americans. There was not that many on television, especially with the free networks at the time. And there were not that many plays. I mean, somebody would be hard-pressed to name two or three plays back then. I mean, you had August Wilson, but outside of that, you would be hard-pressed to name, you know, a lot more. So I did a lot of off-Broadway, a lot of off-off-Broadway, but things didn't really start kicking in until about maybe... I would say about a good 20 years ago. Late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, yeah. But you had some some moments, right? So like your Goodfellas was 1990. Uh-huh. In those 10 years then, you were doing mostly the theater and the off-off Broadway with a sprinkling of Gremlins 2, Goodfellas, that kind of stuff? You know, I did Goodfellas, but then I couldn't. I mean, I didn't get another job for a while there. The thing about Goodfellas was it's a very interesting story. I had done some readings at the actor's studio. And someone came up to me at the actor's studio and said, Paul Newman is having a reading of a film called The Color of Money, and he needs some people to read some various parts. So we're all going to meet over at Paul Newman's apartment, and we're going to read. And I get over there, and it's Martin Scorsese is there, Tom Cruise is there. I mean, pretty much all of the regulars were there to read The Color of Money. And I was hoping I was going to get a part, like the part that Forrest Whitaker played. I'm not hating because I thought he was fantastic in the film. But when Goodfellas came around, I went in to audition for Goodfellas. And Martin Scorsese said, where where do I know you from? I said, well, look, I did those readings for you at Paul Newman's apartment. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "Um, well, the part that you auditioned for, you know, I can't cast you as that guy. And I said, yeah, okay, fine, fine. But he said, but I do have another little small part of this doctor who, when Henry comes in, he's all coked up. And the only guy he trusts in that moment is this doctor. And he said, could you do that for me? And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, act like you've been there, Isaiah. You know. (laughs) So I said, sure, sure. Yeah, I think I can do that. I didn't say I've never done a movie before, but uh, I think I can do it. So I got cast. I got cast right then and there. Back then, Goodfellas was sort of like a feeding frenzy in New York. Everybody wanted to be in Goodfellas. And I came in and said, you know, I just got a part in Goodfellas. The guys I was working with at the bar couldn't believe it. You know, they said, well, look, we're going down there tomorrow because if you got a part, then we know we're going to get a part. (laughs) (laughs) 
thanks, fellas. You know, I'm glad you have a lot of confidence in me and everything like that. But that's how I ended up in Goodfellas. And the part that I auditioned for in Goodfellas was the guy who gets hit over the head with the bottle at the Copacabana, I think it is, when he's uh, he brings the check up to uh, Pesci and Pesci's all pissed off and everything like that. That was the part that I had auditioned for. And of course, yeah, I mean, he was right. You know, there's no way I was going to play that part. I got the part as the doctor and the rest is history. No, that's awesome. And your friends didn't know your secret weapon that you had hung out with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise and everyone years earlier. (laughs) At the time, the movie was called Wise Guy based on the book Wise Guy. But I think there was a TV show or something called Wise Guy. And that's when they changed it to uh, Goodfellas. And I remember when they changed it to Goodfellas, they told me, and I thought, oh, that's never going to fly. I mean, that's that title. I mean, come on, please. You never know, right? You never know how something's going to connect. That, but that name carries uh, yep. carries so much. How much did you hang out with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise? This is like the hot. Tom Cruise would have been like the height height of like Tom Cruise, Top Gun, all the right moves, risky business. So must have been a fun room to be in. I was just there to do the reading, you know. And I'm sitting on the couch in Paul Newman's apartment. And, you know, you're trying to be cool. You know, you're trying to you're trying to act like, you know, I do this all the time, you know, come over to Paul's apartment all the time and hang out. I mean, it was nice because you got to remember, I had just come to New York. I had just got, I don't think I had been here for more than say a year. I was making the rounds and introducing myself to people and trying to make my mark. That's awesome. I would have been all nervous and been like, I love your salad dressing. (laughs) I was was saying that deep inside. (laughs) Like, can you sign my salad dressing? But I was trying to be cool. It must have been hard to be cool because, I mean, it's, it's Tom Cruise have been, it, you know, the hype. But then you're standing there with Paul Newman. It's like, it's like, boom! Wow, that, that must it must be a great memory just to think back on. I'm, I'm sure you have a million of them, but as a, one of uh, your early early memories, that's pretty cool. That is a great story, also. So, what do you mark as? When you say early 2000s, like what is the, is the Spike Lee movie, The 25th Hour? Is that where you kind of think of the stake in the ground where, like you were talking about earlier, where you kind of took off over these last 20 years? Yeah. I mean, that was sort of like the first prominent movie that I got cast in. And that to me kind of launched everything as far as I'm concerned. And working with Spike, developing our relationship with Spike, it was great. I mean, I'll always be indebted to spike for that moment. He put me in the 25th hour and been rolling ever since. You've had a decades long friendship relationship, working relationship with Spike Lee. So with the 25th hour, how did that come together? Or was it just a normal audition process? You got the movie and then you sort of developed this friendship and working relationship? I was doing a play by a writer, Christopher Shin. It was down in Tribeca at a place called the Tribeca Playhouse. I don't even think it's there anymore. But I was doing this play down there called Four, and they wrote about it in the Times. We got reviewed, major reviews from like Ben Brantley and a few others. And it only seated like 50 people in the theater, but it was so raw. There was something very, very raw about it. It was in this sort of seedy theater, you know, we had a cat in the basement and you had to make sure you you closed the door right before you went on stage, because one time the cat walked across the stage and, you know, we had to stop the play and get the cat and get him back down in the basement, that kind of a thing, just to sort of show you what I was doing. (laughs) But uh, Spike came and saw the play. And then after the play, he came back and chatted with the cast a little bit. 
And then uh, he called me in for an audition. I went in, I auditioned. That's where the shit came from. I was doing that, not thinking that, you know, it was going to uh, become that sort of catchphrase. I think it was just something right off the cuff. And I did it there. Spike had me do it in the 25th hour a couple of times. And, and that's how that all started. It's really, really interesting. Sorry, you neglected to mention that in the play four, you were nominated for an Outstanding Acting Award. So that's cool. Very cool. <laughs> it helps. All right. So you do the, the one movie with Spike Lee. So does he consider you like, are you like a muse now? Because like you're starring in The Five Bloods, you're in Black Klansman, right? You're in all the other, I think you've done six total movies. Something like that. Does he just like think about you now? Like what would you feel if he did a movie tomorrow and you weren't in it? Like well, how would you feel? Or would there be no question? You'd be like, no, Jeff, I'd be in it even if for it was a walk-on thing just to be in it. Like is that, are you his like lucky charm now? I never look at it like that. I mean, it, if he did a movie tomorrow and I wasn't in it, I mean, oh, well, then I'd go do some other movie or whatever. If he's doing something and he calls me and I'm I'm available to do it, then, you know, I do. I wouldn't, I'm not going to sit there and take it personal or anything like that. I mean, you know. <laughs> I meant it in a fun way, but like, you know. <laughs> I know. No, I'm not going to be crying or anything like that. I never really think about it in, in any of those terms. It's To me, it's like, it's just all business. And if it fits, I'll do it. Awesome. So the origin of, I, mean, I don't want to even, she, she. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't even want to do it because I you do it. So I don't, doing it in front of you is too is too nerve-wracking. But the, the origin of it is of your catchphrase then, or what became your catchphrase it, is the twenty fifth hour, not the wire, where probably most yeah. people think it originated. Yeah, the wire they started writing it in. But the thing about the wire is that that catchphrase. I mean, I've heard people say that tons of times over the years, especially in you know the circles I run into. That's why I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I never looked at it until much later that it was a catchphrase and it was going to stick. I mean, I never did. I just viewed that as just the way a lot of people talked. But a friend told me, he said, no, it's not. It's not the word. It's the way you say it with this sort of Midwestern slash Southern accent that gives it the ring that makes, that differentiates it from all of the others. When I start to think about it, I said, oh, you know, you're right. You know, it's got that little bit of, there's a little slight twang in there. And there's a little starts in the nose. I mean, you start breaking it down. I, I never realized it, but that's what it was. But I just viewed that as just the way people would talk. So even when they start doing it in the wire, I just thought, okay, yeah, fine. That makes sense. But it really took off when I started doing it in the wire. And then a lot of it comes down to where you do it. You know, you just can't sit there and start doing it. But I mean, if you really put it in a spot where it just kind of rings out, whether character was angry or thought something was very, very funny, that's when it starts to starts to work. So I sometimes had to be a little careful not to make it so arbitrary, but really make it specific to sort of help what I was actually doing. And I think that sort of adds to it. Absolutely. It's got to mean something. It's got to, you don't want to overuse it because then it loses its power. Yeah, in a way, <laughs> in a way. It's a it, little bit power, but. You know, the, you know the, the punch, the punch that it provides. Yeah. It's funny though, because if the clip of 25th, hour ed norton says to you ed norton's character says to your character come on get it over with (laughs) 
Yeah. Which is funny. Like if you think about it now, you know, cause then you say the, fr- then you say the catch, you say she right, right after that. But like now it's kind of has a little extra humor to it that it didn't have at the time. Just cause if you could take it as he means just pull the, the drugs and the money out. But you know, it's funny now to think knowing that the catchphrase is coming and, and we're so used to it now for decades. That's how, that's how I reheard it. <laughs> And the guy's being such an asshole up until that point, (laughs) (laughs) sitting on the couch. And and yes, you know, now when you watch it, you know what's coming. And so it is kind of funny. So the only thing you've done more times than work with Spike Lee is appear on Law and Order. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've broken the record on that. At least a dozen or so times. Yeah, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, uh, Criminal Intent. Funny thing about Criminal Intent was I did the first episode of Criminal Intent. I think it was like the first one out of the gate. I'll never forget it because the director told me that I was talking and acting way too slow and that they didn't have enough time for those moments. You know, I was playing some detective and real internal and everything like that. And everything was taken like 10, 15 minutes. And he sort of kindly reminded me that the show was not about me or my character or anything like that, that I had to speed things up. I did the first episode. So then 10 years later, my agent called me and he said, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news, they're bringing your character back on criminal intent, that detective that you play. This is like 10 years later. He says, they're bringing the character back. The bad news it's the last episode they're ever going to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I did the first episode and I did the last episode. And the sad part is that 10 years later, I was still available. And they could still get me. And, you know, I walked in there as if nothing had changed over the 10 years. I think I even wore the same clothes. No, no, it's, I think it's great. You went back, you respect people that gave you the early jobs and you said, yeah, we're going to do this one more time, one more time. <laughs> I think it's cool. It was a different director, you know. Well, thankfully, Law and Order is going to be around forever. So if anything else ever were to dry up, which I'm sure it won't, Law and Order will always be there. It's <laughs> a Law and Order will always be there. Some Law and Order, Some yes. Some Law and Order. Kept a lot of actors employed. It was great work. It was different characters every time, too, right? I mean, yeah. the one time was probably might have been the same one, but Criminal Intent. But on Law and Order, was it was multiple times, multiple people, right? Yeah. They bring you back as different people when they bring you back. Yeah. Okay. I think when I killed all the kids up in Harlem, somebody said, hey, look, you know, we got to slow things down here. You know, we can't have them come back as somebody's dad or lawyer the next season or something like that. I think I had to take like a little three-year break or something like that, kind of get that image out of everybody's mind. But I did a lot of jazz drummer, police officer, some creepy guy, religious nut. That was when I killed all the kids up in Harlem. And I mean, it just went on and on and on. You got range. <laughs> that I do. That I do. <laughs> so back to Spike Lee for a second. You played the same character in three of his movies, 25th Hour, She Hate Me, and Red Hook Summer, Agent Flood. It kind of changes. I mean, the guy in the 25th Hour was a DEA agent. And I think in... Uh, she hate me. I was securities and exchange guy. It sort of fluctuates, but I was coming back. I wouldn't say same character other than the fact the guy was named Detective Flood, but the character would, would always be different because I think well, there was a police officer in a Red Hook Summer or like a police detective, but it was always Detective Flood. Excellent. <laughs> There's a little bit of a history there, you know. Awesome. All right. So the next huge thing is The Wire. Mm-hmm. 
in the first season of The Wire, I mean, your your role in The Wire expands season to season to season. Yeah. Was it always going to be that way? No. When you first see me at The Wire, I was only supposed to be at a cocktail party. You see me at two cocktail parties. And that was it. That was the extent of it. But then in the third season, they decided to write a storyline for my character. My character was never on the radar, Clay Davis. But I guess they liked what they saw in the first couple of seasons at the cocktail parties. And they said, oh, let's write a storyline for this guy. And that's what they did. They wrote Clay Davis. And I remember when David Simon told me, he said, yeah, you're going to come back. You're going to be this guy and you're going to be ripping off the drug dealers and they're going to think they're ripping you off, but you're going to be ripping them off. So that third season, I came back with the storyline of Clay Davis. It's an interesting story. Like, there's a lot of times I talk to people where they're like, they make an impact and then they get expanded roles. Then did you have a rule how many times they could make you say she eat? <laughs> I never thought about it. I, I couldn't tell you. Just trusted David Simon to do it, do it right. right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was sort of come and go. I say at the time, I really didn't give it much thought was, yeah, OK, yeah, I think it works here. There was one episode where I did a very, very long, like really long shit. I was sort of goofing around. I, I was shocked when they left it in. <laughs> I'll never forget when I saw it. I went, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, But it felt like it went on for like about a minute. It was quite long. That's really funny. So it must be kind of cool to be on what most consider one of the greatest TV shows ever made. So like the BBC named The Wire the greatest TV show in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Rolling Stone had it number two behind, which I'm sure you can raz Brian Cranston about on the set of Your Honor, uh, behind Breaking Bad, which was number three. They had Sopranos as number one. But the Daily Mail in the UK had you, The Wire number one, Breaking Bad number three. Again, if you're jotting this down, you can you can rip Brian Cranston. <laughs> <laughs> gotta be funny like to be on because like, those are the two series that people talk about the most when the arguments of what's the greatest show ever the wire or breaking bad so to me that's always like a silly argument i mean it's, it boils down to what you watch what i do enjoy is the fact that that's what you're arguing about you're arguing about what was the best show in the history you know and i'm in one of the shows so i'm sitting there saying well at that point it's like it's Whatever you're into, you can be The Wire, it could be Breaking Bad. I mean, you know, more power to you. But the fact that I'm in the conversation as either one or two, I'm saying, well, then, okay, toss up here. <laughs> and it's amazing because both shows are incredible. So it's like, you know, just it's a coin toss. One one minute it'll be one, one minute it'll be the other. But it's, it yeah, it must be really cool to be like, oh, yeah, I was, I'm on that show. Yeah, it's number one show. <laughs> <laughs> But to be on that show and to make an impact, because I remember when I started on the show, the show had gotten off to an incredible start. And I remember when they said they were going to run a storyline for me, I thought, OK, Isaiah, don't be the weak link on the wire. I didn't want to be that guy where you say, yeah, you know, it, it was it was a good show. But then they had that guy who was the senator. I think his name was Clay Davis, you know, or whatever. And so I thought, OK, you know, I got to make sure, you know, that. I make an impact with this guy. So I brought the whole package. I mean, I went into the vault and uh, and got some stuff out that nobody had seen before and put that character together and, and let it just let it rip. I thought if they don't like it, they'll just come and say, hey, I say you need to pull some of this back. But they never did. 
as little as you were in season one compared to the other seasons, uh, you brought, I mean, even there, you could see, you could see it. You shined even there. You shined even there. But I can't even imagine that with the amount of talent in the room and on that cast that anybody wouldn't just naturally elevate their game way up. It must have been just incredible to just to be around that many good actors. Well, that's one thing that we sort of take for granted is that when you're in a room of talented people like that, they're going to force you to up your game, you know, whether you want to up it or not. You know, they're going to hit you with truth and you're going to respond with truth. It's hard to sort of, you know, lay back or or be lame, you know, when you're sitting across from a Stringer Bell or Omar or somebody like that, or it's tough. It was a joy to go in and play those characters and deal with the people I was dealing with because I always just did know they were at the top of their game. That's awesome. Because I imagine every experience, not just for you, but just in general, isn't always probably as as wonderful as, as working on The Wire must have been. This leads me to uh, Cedar Rapids, Ronald Wilkie, the uh, Ronimal, as I <laughs> as I reminded you earlier. So this came out right after The Wire. The Wire ended around 2008. Cedar Rapids comes out around 2011. <laughs> and Cedar Rapids, I just love this movie. One of the reasons I love it, I have a friend in it. It was filmed in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was filmed locally to me. And so my friend Christy Angelo was in it. I don't know that you may have met him or not. He's uh, he's in the beginning and at the end. He's the uh, client that Ed Helms, Tim Lippy's character, is with and then recruits at the end when you guys all start your own insurance company at the end. Okay. So that was like one of the original reasons it was so high on my radar was because uh, a buddy of mine was, was in it. And that was such a big deal for all of us. But you steal the movie with a scene of you doing Omar from The Wire. <laughs> and the interesting thing about this, and or confirm it or if it's true or not, is that the scene was written before you were attached to the movie. Yeah. So funny. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Cedar Rapids is, is about an, an insurance company convention, and Isaiah's character meets up with Tim Lippy, who's Ed Helms, and Dean Ziegler, who's John C. Riley, who affectionately calls you Ronimal, and and Hayesh is in it. And lots lots of great people. There's a scene where there's a party going on, uh, like a in a drug house, and you bust in to save Tim Lippy, Ed Helms' character, and you realize you have to go, you have to up your, you have to up it to get out of there safe, and you go into an impression of Omar. I do my impression of Omar, yeah. And then you kind of like go, oh, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big fan of The Wire. <laughs> yeah, that was in the movie way before I was attached to it. And I remember they were a little concerned because I think it almost cost me like the part because I was so attached to the wire that it it seemed like a little too much wink wink that you would be doing that. That being said, it played a lot in the back of my mind that I needed to distance myself or distance the character that I was playing from the wire. That was the only way you were going to be able to buy that moment at the end is if throughout the whole movie I had distanced myself from Clay Davis and the wire. You weren't thinking that. You were just, at that moment, you were just thinking of the Ronimo, this insurance salesman from Minnesota, who had a billboard out in the middle of the woods where nobody, <laughs> you don't get very much traffic, you know, to, to see it, but it was there and he was very proud of it. I had to distance myself 
from Clay Davis. And by that time, I was able to lay that line in there and have people buy it. That person thought, oh, this might be a little too wink wink. We might have to change it or something because everybody would know him as the character from The Wire. But people bought it. It is a great moment in the film. Oh, it's so funny. It's it's a great moment. As I was looking at the trailer online, I was like, oh, they put that whole scene in the trailer. I'm like, you know, I hate when you look back. I'm like, you hate when they put like the best scenes of movies in the trailer, because that would have been such a a cool moment to have just experienced not knowing it it was there. Yeah, Yeah, but you were so funny, like in the car. You're like, I do a pretty convincing Omar from the HBO program, The Wire. (laughs) Just the way you said that. I did a terrible Omar, too. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I remember I was looking at the video, trying to get it down. And when, when, when I actually did it during the film, I just thought, this is not going the way I, I want it. Because I really did want to do Omar, but it just went off into this weird, sort of bizarre Omar-ish thing. It was just weird. It worked because it, it sort of fit the character. I remember when I saw Michael K. Williams, God bless his soul, who passed away recently, I apologized to him because I said, <laughs> I tried to imitate you in this movie, and I was just awful. I was just awful. But when it came out, he told me that he went to see it because he had gotten so many hits on Twitter that I was doing Omar from The Wire. He said he just had to go and see it. I can imagine that he loved it, that he just thought it was hilarious. I think people love, like, I love wink, wink stuff, like when done well. And I think that was done really well. I love, like, I love Arrested Development when Henry Winkler is in it and he'll go into the bathroom and he looks in the mirror and he kind of does that little Fonz pose that he does and then walks out. You know, like, I love, I love little nods like that. It makes me feel good. Black Klansman, one of two Spike Lee movies you've done recently. Mm -hmm. Love that movie. Mm -hmm. That was a great movie. Could have used more Isaiah Whitlock Jr. in it, but it was incredible. Yeah. That's like in one of my top movies that I've enjoyed in a long time. That was really, really good. And I enjoyed uh, your catchphrase in it as well. But To Five Bloods, which came out in 2020, did that, did To Five Bloods go directly to, was that released directly on Netflix? Yeah, that, it, it wasn't supposed to be, but it was released uh, at the height of the pandemic. They shut everything down in March. And The Five Bloods came out that June. It was unfortunate because it was a movie that you really needed to see it on a big screen to be able to appreciate it. Just some of the shots and things were just awesome, fantastic. The landscape and everything like that to get the impact of what, if you were a soldier during the war, you would be faced with. But it just came out on Netflix and there was not much you could do about it. I, I agree with you 100%. It's it's shot so gorgeous that maybe they'll do a, re, a re-release in the theaters, give people a chance to see it on the big screen. Because that definitely is a movie that would be beautiful to see on the big screen. They've got some amazing shots. And then I think there's one scene where we're in like the Mekong Delta. It was so colorful and so beautiful and, and real. It was uh, it was amazing. I enjoyed that movie. You were great in it. That this was not a cameo. This was your your full on star. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. 
<laughs> you were great. It's it's a great t- you know it's like it's funny because as I was watching it, right? It starts the four of you go back to Vietnam to recover your lost brother blood commander commander right it became like the movie kept it changed from what i thought it was gonna be i thought it was gonna be a fun buddy movie you know not i shouldn't say not fun i thought it was gonna be a a dramatic buddy movie and then it turned into like a, a caper like with the gold just the whole psychology of what money can do and and then just trying to get back out and survive it was it was quite a roller coaster i i did i enjoyed it very much yeah i enjoyed it very much you know, I, I mean, I was glad it didn't turn out to be that sort of buddy buddy movie. I mean, it, in some ways, it is a buddy movie, kind of the way it probably would be. But you know, you have guys, you know, the personalities and things like that. You began to see how things start to break down, especially once we actually find the gold. Then things kind of go haywire, and everybody have these wild ideas as to what they're gonna do. Don't want to share. I know my character didn't want to share anything. <laughs> Melvin Melvin was not giving any of his gold to a cause. <laughs> It's an interesting psychology though, right? It's it's kind of like when, you know, if, if you said if someone said to you, Oh, if I gave you five million dollars right now, would you say, Oh, I would, you know, I'd do this and I'd do this with it. You know, but then when if someone then hands you <laughs> money of uh, five million dollars, then like your the whole thought process changes. The whole thought process changes. Yeah, it all it all changed once you guys found the money. The only th- unrealistic thing I thought in the movie was carrying all that gold. <laughs> <laughs> My back are just thinking about it. Like how much one of those bars must have weighed, let alone, you know, a whole backpack. We were weighted down and I demanded that they put extra weight into my backpack. I wanted people to see just how difficult it was to be carrying all of that gold. It's 120 degrees out or something and you've got this gold and you're marching through the jungle and there's spiders and snakes and mosquitoes and things like that. But I would say about three quarters of the way, you know, you really got the feel of the elements and everything like that. I thought Spike Lee did a great job putting you right there. Yeah. Like right there. Like I said, I wasn't joking. Like my back hurt. I had to go to the chiropractor just watching you guys carry. Like I thought it was funny, like Jonathan Majors character where he's like, you know, younger and is like, all right, well, all right, we'll give him some because like you just needed someone to carry it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Okay. Fine. Here, take half of it. You know, by the end, we were giving, we were pretty much giving the giving the gold away. You know, so, you know I tell them, you know, we got to put it on Craigslist. And just anybody who wanted some, as long as you can carry it, it's okay. <laughs> exactly. That was a great line. That was a great line of yours. That was good. I don't want to. It's still so new. I don't want to talk about like what happens to the character specifically or anything because I don't want to ruin anything. I do want to talk about your amazing bobblehead Kickstarter campaign as well. I know we, we talked about the origin of, of Sheet and keep feeling bad that I, how bad I do it. I feel like how you felt doing Omar. Like, I'm like, I'm just not doing it justice in front of you. <laughs> but this is a cool thing that I found that you did is that, and this is 2017, is that when Twitter went from 140 to 200 characters, you tweeted out, Sheet. Yes filled up the whole use it all, all all of the used it all up which for anyone listening it's a 9e rule but this this is the one time it was okay to break it over forty six thousand retweets over a hundred and twenty seven thousand likes 
on a phrase that you thought wasn't going to go anywhere way back when. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, that's that's just, I think you, uh, you set the bar for 280 character tweets. I will say also that History of Swear Words on Netflix did you a disjustice, not just running the full 56 minutes <laughs> of, you, <laughs> of you doing the... Well, you know, I mean, look, I remember as they said, yeah, they're going to do the history of swear words. And I was going to was like, you can do it. But if you don't put me in it, it's not going to work. If you're going to do the history of swear words, I've sort of cornered the market on that one. So they had to roll with me. How long did you really go for? Can you can you divulge that? or <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell. Let's, it's better not to know. For anyone who wants to have your catchphrase with them, you did the world the favor of developing an Isaiah Whitlock Jr. bobblehead. What kind of, uh, what gave you that idea other than everyone probably asking you to say it in every supermarket and everything you do every day. So you're like, I should come up with something that people can just have me on demand. So what, what was the whole origin of the bobblehead? Cause it, it eventually led to what the biggest Kickstarter in history. My uh, business partner and I, we, I had seen a bobblehead at a guy's house in Baltimore. And it was a nice sized bobblehead, weighted, very well made. And I looked up the address on the bottom of it, which was still there. And I decided I was going to make a bobblehead of myself saying shit. I said, but I didn't want it to be the same as any old bobblehead. I said, if I can get the bobblehead to talk, then I'll order a bunch of them. But I was only going to do like maybe like a hundred. And so my business partner said, well, let's go on Kickstarter, see if we can sell them before we make them. Then we're not, we're not on the hook for uh, the money of making them. And we sold over $100,000 worth of bobbleheads. They gave me a check of $100,000 or close to it. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. And for a split second, I said... <laughs> <laughs> The people of Baltimore need this more. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> For a split second, I said to myself, you know, all of the people who bought the bobblehead knew they were dealing with Clay Davis, knew who they were giving their money to. What if I just don't make the bobbleheads and just take the money <laughs> and just say, hey, you knew who you were dealing with, and yet you still gave, you know, your $30 or whatever. Wiser heads said, no, we have to make these. Wiser bobbleheads. Yes, wiser bobbleheads. Yes, <laughs> that's good. And I, uh, but I found a company to make them. Then we got them to everybody. Not only did we make all of the bobbleheads, we sold out. We made a second edition, and then we made a third edition. And we're contemplating making a fourth edition for the 20th anniversary of the Wire. My participation in it and stuff. So that's what we uh, decided to do. That's awesome. Are they still available at? She.com. She.com. You can just look it up on, you just punch it in on Google. And if you put 90s, SH, 90s, IT, it'll take you right there and you can get one there. And you get three recordings. Three. Yes. Very wonderful recordings. Yes, you get three recordings. Uh, you can have it whenever you have a desire to say shit. <laughs> I can teach you how to say it if you want, you know, but everybody, they stood. It, it's all in how you start because after you do the SH, the sh, then it's got to jump into your nose. If it doesn't do that, it's not going to work. You're going to, you're going to sound like my old landlord who, uh, 
had to be had to do the worst one. If you do the SH and then immediately put the rest of it in your nose until you get to the IT, you'll do it perfectly. I should be good at this. I'm I'm uh, Midwestern. I'm all nose. All right, let's try. I'm gonna give one shot. One shot in front of you, and then a sheen. <laughs> 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 you just, you just made, for a minute, I thought my landlord was in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely in my nose. So I, oh, I'm going to work you, on it. I'm going to work you on it. You should, I mean, if you're from, you're from where? Michigan. Michigan, Ann Arbor. That should just come as a natural, as a, as a natural thing, because it's got to be that, it's got to be, she, she, I think I'm trying too hard because you're here. I'm thinking I'm just trying, like, I'm so self-conscious about it. So I'll have to attend the Whitlock Academy and uh, officially learn how to do it. Yes. I show you how to do it on the Whitlock Academy. You know, you can practice. I mean, if I can get Tarzan to do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> anybody. <laughs> There's hope for me yet. <laughs> Tell me about your new show with Brian Cranston. Uh, your honor. Yes. We shot that down in, uh, New Orleans. It was very successful on Showtime. We're coming back for a second season. So we will be back with uh, Your Honor. I don't know what the stories will be, but I just know that we will be back. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Working with Brian is incredible. You know, he's a real pro, real champ. Uh, love working with him, scenes and stuff that I do with him. Everybody on that show was very good. Michael Stolberg. I love New Orleans. It's one of my favorite places to, to be. I, I've only been there one time, but it was just before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, I loved it. Well, you know, the thing is, though, when we were there, we shut down because of the pandemic that March, right after Mardi Gras. The weird thing was when you're in New Orleans and there's no food and there's no music, and there's <laughs> no Bourbon Street or... Then you start asking yourself, you know, what the hell are you doing? It's kind of like being in New York and asking yourself, you know, what the hell am I doing? If you're not getting out and about, I mean, because that's what you do in these big cities. You're out and about and you're here, there, this place. And you take all of that away. And if you're not comfortable being with yourself, <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> Cafe Dumont. My favorite place, a beignet with too much powdered sugar. I, and I mean that in a good way. It, that's, I love it. I have I actually have the coffee at, at home. I love it. Mm. I can't wait to go back. Think about the coffee there. Then they sell you the tin of coffee, but the coffee never tastes the same when I make it at home. It doesn't taste as good as, as when I get it there. I got to be doing something wrong. I haven't been able to find that right mix i think it's you just got to be there i think it's just you need it just like it gives you a little bit of the memory but i think part of it's just being there yeah yeah it's, it's better to go just go to new orleans go to cafe dumont and then after cafe dumont go and hit one of the clubs or bars or whatever but it is a great place i enjoy it and looking forward to going back that's awesome and that's exciting on season two and just promise me you'll razz brian cranston about being number one and him being number three. <laughs> I'll wait until we finish shooting and then I'll I'll get it I'll get into that. I'm gonna send him a copy of this of this conversation. <laughs> one last thing I just wanted to mention, which I, I thought was wonderful that I saw on your website is the Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Fine Arts Theater Endowment that you have. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was so great that you have something there to help other people, you know, fulfill their dreams. So I thought I thought that was really cool on your website that you allow people to donate to that. Yeah. And that you even took the time to, to put it together. So I just wanted to kind of mention that. I'm going to be going there tomorrow to do a master class with acting students and 
and hopefully that will turn into a yearly thing. That's where I started. So I always want to try and give, give back a little bit. That's awesome. You know what else is awesome? You for hanging out with me. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Thank you. I'm sorry how bad I was at doing uh, she, 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 she. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just stopped. I just made it worse. Like I said, you, you got to pitch everything yeah. forward. I'll do it perfect. Second we hang up, I'll do it perfect. I know it. She, that's what it's got to be. Just throw it all forward. Can Nothing can be left in the back of your throat. Give it a go. She, see, I can't. I, <laughs> no, but you are. I just can't. This is. I'm having. I'm having performance anxiety. You had it, and then you got about halfway through, and you just gave up on it. Got to trust yourself. Got to let it go. But just stay forward. Just keep it all forward. She. No, see, I ended. I, I ended wrong. Ah. But that was pretty good. Pretty good. All right. Well, I got. I got up to a pretty good. You got to come. You just got to commit to it. Just commit to it. You got to bang your thumb or something, and then let it rip. Or um, somebody tries to cheat you out of money or something it'll come out all right it will and then when it does i will i will email you and i will let you know my success i was in amsterdam and i saw it on the at the train station someone had written it on the other side of the tracks coming out of the mouth of a guy who was the guy kind of looked like fat albert i guess that was supposed to be me (laughs) that was the only thing i didn't like about it it's strange, though, when I go to other places around the world and people do it because it's like you're in Italy and, you know, you're at St. Mark's Square or something like that. And somebody does it and it, it just throws me off. It's uh, it's a little bizarre. But, hey, if people enjoy it, who am I to say no? I'm sorry you're burdened with being a worldwide sensation. <laughs> but somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got <laughs> Who knew that that is the word that would make you a worldwide sensation? But anyway. Anyway, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. It was a lot of fun hanging out with you. You bet, man. Anytime. All right. How awesome was Isaiah Whitlock Jr.? After listening to that interview, I'm sure you're like, I need one of those bobbleheads. I do too. Race me over to she.com. That's S-H-9-E-S-I-T.com. You can buy one there. I hear they're going fast. You heard how popular they are, so if you want one, now's the time to act. Just in time for the holidays. I'm curious what your favorite Isaiah Whitlock Jr. movie is. Tweet at me at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. Let me know. I would love to hear that. Mine was Cedar Rapids. I talked about that in the interview. The interview over. That means we're nearing the end of the episode. But wait, it's not over yet. That's right. There's still time for a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free hashtag roundup app at the Google App Store or Apple App Store. Totally free. Play along and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag, if you play along, you probably have already guessed it, is the very hashtag that Isaiah Whitlock Jr. hosted with us at Hashtag Roundup not too long ago. 
Hashtag makes me say shit. See, I've gotten a little better at it since the interview. I, I've been practicing. So Isaiah, of course, was the host of that hashtag. Who else could host that hashtag but Isaiah himself? I'm going to read off some tweets. They'll, of course, be retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. All right. So buckle up as I read some hashtag makes me say shit tweets shit okay i get it you say it better than me but i'm gonna give it a shot anyway and here we go twitter not having an edit button people who speed to a red light when your friends invite you to dinner but it turns into an amway meeting these all definitely make me say shit forgetting to do the laundry when elwood and jake try to take aretha's man People showing up unannounced. That definitely deserves a shit. When my boss asks for volunteers on the weekend shift. Too many typos in a document. Hearing a lie, knowing it's a lie. Trash sitting on the countertop right next to the wastebasket. Seriously? Shit. The blue screen of death. And the final. Hashtag makes me say shit. Anytime someone rings my doorbell. Oh, that definitely makes me say shit. (laughs) I'll keep trying. Well, those were some awesome tweets. But as we come to the end of the reading of the hashtag, that can only mean one thing. Episode 82 has come to an end. I can't believe it's over already. I do want to thank my special guest, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.